If you've been craving a discussion on overpopulation that goes beyond the superficial social media arguments and news headlines, you're in the right place. Next time you hear Elon Musk talk about increasing world population, just post the link to this episode as your rebuttal. Conversations like the one you're about to hear are woefully few and far between. Most prefer to talk about the many symptoms like climate change, ocean acidification, extinction, inequity, biodiversity loss, but there's only one root cause, and it's the one thing almost everyone prefers to ignore. And lest you think you're about to listen to yet another long list of problems caused by human overpopulation without solutions being offered, fear not. There is a way out of this, and the solutions are just humane and practical. Whether humanity takes the path that gives us the best chance to avoid the worst of what currently lies before us remains to be seen. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Nandita Bajaj, Executive Director of Population Balance, is a humane educator and a passionate advocate for planetary health. Nandita's area of interest is on the intimate links between pronatalism, anthropocentrism, and overpopulation, and their impacts on human rights, animal protection, and environmental preservation. As faculty with the Institute for Humane Education at Antioch University, Nandita teaches two courses, Human Rights as well as Pronatalism and Overpopulation, a first-of-its-kind online course that she designed to explore the impacts of the pervasive and oppressive pressures on women to have children and the resulting impacts on them, other humans, animals, as well as the planet. Carter Dillard is a policy director and board member of the Fair Start Movement. Author of Justice as a Fair Start in Life, Carter began his career as an honors program appointee to the U.S. Department of Justice. He later served as legal advisor to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in the National Security Law Division. He wrote his thesis, Reformulating the Right to Have Children, under Jeremy Waldron. Uh, humane education is both a field of study, but it's also an approach to educating and advocating that draws connections between human rights, animal protection, and also ecological sustainability. And so from this framework, we start by looking at the human population issue and the underlying causes that are fueling population growth. And I basically describe two pieces that touch on the humane education perspective one being our worldview of extreme anthropocentrism, uh, or as Eileen Christ calls it, a human supremacist worldview, a widely shared unconscious worldview that humans alone possess intrinsic value and that nature and all other beings are important only to the degree in which they serve us humans. It's clear even in the language that we use, we call much of the non-human world resources, and uh, our ultimate goal 
is has been and is to dominate the planet with our species. The second piece of how humane education ties into um, population is that population growth actually depends on the subjugation of personal and reproductive autonomy. Having children is a you know pop, in the population arena, um, it's seen as a contentious issue. Um, but if you kind of break it down, you look at having children when done under the right circumstances in a just and sustainable way, as Carter will speak to in a bit, it can be and is for many a beautiful, purposeful, and joyous thing. But one cannot assume that is the case for everyone. And once you start kind of peeling back the layers of what's actually going on, you see that population growth is actually happening on the backs of those with the least personal and reproductive autonomy. Um, most of it is happening in countries with oppressive cultural practices, such as low status of women, gender-based violence, um, forced child marriage, etc. And it leads to hundreds of millions of people, especially women, into situations of forced pregnancy, unwanted births, etc. So really, when you um, dissected, reproduction has actually become uh, exploited as a tool to keep a lot of power structures alive, such that young women and um, young girls and women in general are pressured and often coerced into having children and large families in order to keep the supply of religious followers, workers, taxpayers, soldiers, et cetera, um, to keep going. So, you know, from a humane education perspective, human population growth is an issue that impacts people, animals, and the rest of the planet uh, because it relies on unjust practices, but also because then the growth itself um, further perpetuates a lot of inequities and unjust practices. And, you know, that's kind of the interconnection between human people, uh, sorry, people, animals, and the planet. I mean, if we wanted to teach children um, how they should treat other beings, the first thing we have to explain to them is, well, who should we be as a people? Uh, and to date, that question is largely getting answered uh, in the form of, well, we should be people that fill a shopping mall because gross domestic product is God. Um, and we should maintain high levels of consumption, low levels of labor cost, um, and a growing tax base so that we are this big, powerful entity. And that's the antithesis of, of being a free people. Um, if you wanted to be a free people, you would envision yourself not in a shopping mall, but in a town hall. You would have a role in deciding the governance under which you lived. That would mean participating in the system. That would mean smaller groups of people who actually could have a voice. Your relationship to other people in the town hall um, would be one of empathizing with them. Uh, you, you wouldn't be having a commercial relationship where you relied on incentives backed by state coercion. You would be engaged in negotiations with them in an empathetic political relationship. Um, and 
empathetic people, smaller populations living in participatory democracies, the freedom, the opposite of a shopping mall mentality that is completely consistent with rewilding, completely consistent with nature. What's the point of teaching children how they should be empathetic towards other creatures if those creatures don't exist, if we haven't restored our ecology and rewilded the earth? And the relationship that the children would have to other species is one of uh, empathy and pro-social behavior. Uh, so to Nandita's point, it's not just about rewilding for nature as a value. It's being free, being a, a free people. There's no such thing as a freedom to do whatever you want to do. That's nonsense. There's no concept like that. Freedom is freedom from other people. And we know that's what nature is. And it's also freedom to do. And the way we know what we're allowed to do is by participating in a town hall. That's how we come up with the rules. So I see human education as teaching children, this is who we should be. Uh, and it's consistent with rewilding, women's liberation, uh, empathy, and it's the antithesis of a shopping mall. Uh, and it's what our, I think, what our country's founders had hoped for, but had lost because of the hegemony of economics. Candida, can you uh, discuss your work on making the links between pronatalism and overpopulation and also define pronatalism for us? Um, yeah, I briefly touched upon um, these pressures that are placed on um, women, especially to bear children and have large families as a means to, to other ends. But if you take more of a 30,000 foot view at pronatalism, um, it is uh, the social bias towards having biological children. And a good definition from uh, Laura Carroll's book, The Baby Matrix, is Pronatalism is an attitude or policy that is pro-birth, that encourages reproduction, that exalts the role of parenthood. It's the idea that parenthood and raising children should be the central focus of every person's adult life. And it's a strong social force, includes a collection of beliefs so embedded that they've become to be seen as true. And it's based on the premise that reproduction is not only normal, but also natural. Um, for example, it has been debunked uh, that uh, the biological bias, uh, the procreative drive that we often talk about to have children is not a universal drive. But the social bias is so strong that we are made to believe that our desire to procreate is natural, but also universal. So what happens when you mix in these cultural ideas about having children and that we must all uh, make that a part of our life's journey with the coercive set of power structures like religion, like corporations, like um, you know, political enterprises, uh, and as Carter said, economic pressures to grow the GDP, you get a very toxic mix of uh, pressures that are all pointing to one thing, that everybody must have children. And so, you know, as I briefly mentioned, they show up in the form of religious pressures, um, which are depicted as shame, guilt, fatalism. Um, you start to see, you know, an active restriction of contraceptives or a ban on family planning services. 
we're seeing a lot of economy-driven pressures showing up in uh, industrialized countries like Canada, uh, US, Australia, et cetera, through baby bust alarmism, a view that our economy will suffer if we don't keep producing more people. You see political pressures showing up through child tax credits or lump sum baby bonuses. And you know some of them are camouflaged as family friendly, sometimes even feminist friendly. But again, when you dig a little deeper, you come to realize that it's that the these incentives don't exist to help people, individual citizens, children. They exist to promote reproduction. So, you know, you mix that with a bunch of cultural pressures, which become even harder to detect because they're everywhere. They're in media, magazines, in our families uh, that glorify parenthood, that um, spread myths such as biological clock, maternal instinct, etc., cetera, uh, or even diminish um, small families by spreading myths about one-child families. Um, it can be really harmful because what they are essentially doing is preventing authentic discussions around family choices, where we're not openly talking about the true impact of having children on ourselves, on our potential children, on society, environment. You know, so you start to break it all down, you realize that our growing population is actually putting immense pressure on the planet and all the beings on the planet. Pronatalism actually fuels this population growth and at the same time is premised on the exploitation of people. So there's like subjugation of rights happening, both leading to overpopulation and then overpopulation further perpetuates uh, those injustices. It's starting to remind me of the things I first learned about feedback loops. When you combine pronatalism, human exceptionalism, and an economic system dependent on eternal growth, it sounds like the same thing. It sounds like we invented something in our culture that we currently have that's centered around this global economic system. Unfortunately, um, you're completely right. Um, our focus as human beings, as a species, has, I feel like, completely shifted from um, what comprises, you know, our humanity to hold this incredible planet and all of the beings of this planet in reverence. And as Carter de described, you know, as a state in which we have these relationships with one another, with other beings that are based in uh, care and empathy that's all kind of been wiped out and been taken over by this mechanistic, materialistic worldview where we are kind of beset by greed and competition and unrest and dissatisfaction. It, it doesn't seem like a great way to live. You both are doing work uh, to extensively go further in this conversation, whether or not the whole world's caught up to you or not, because we need to, we need to play it. That's why I'm so excited to have you guys here. And one, one part of that is uh, Carter, if you could talk about the fair start movement, uh, what is it? How is it the, should be the first and overriding human right? What's it got to do with nature? It began about 12 years ago when I was doing research on the right to have children. A lot of the legal 
analysis around the right to have children said it's a personal private right to the parents to choose the timing, spacing, number of their children, however they wish to do it. When you dig deeper and you look at the moral philosophy and the underpinnings of that right, that statement doesn't make any sense. Um, it's a complete misstatement of the right to have children. First off, uh, while not having children, like terminating a pregnancy or using contraception is, is autonomous. Having children is interpersonal. It's not, a, it's not autonomous at all. Uh, it involves the future child in the community. And so you have to account for that. Secondly, the right to have children, if you don't base it on autonomy, you end up having to find some other basis for the right. And all of our analysis showed that the right really is based on the right to continue and improve your life. That's what parents should want for their children. They should want their children to represent continuity and improvement of their lives. And if you use that value and you balance out everything else, you get, you get to a very particular right. The right starts from freedom from others or rewilded, restored environment where you, you literally are self-determining. You you know, you might come down to 280 or less parts per million uh, climate emissions so that you're not being determined at infancy by having fetal heart defects imposed by the climate crisis. And then as you add people to that nature, that vision, you have to account for how each person added when they're an adult uh, limits the self-determination of the people that came before them in the entity. You end up finding that having kids properly, the right to have children properly interpreted is all about uh, moving from the view that it's self-determining for the parents. It's not. It's other determining for the children. And you have to do it in a way that maintains relative self-determination or freedom for everybody. And, and honestly, that comes down to smaller families, uh, parents who are ready. And most importantly, and this is the thing that shocks most people, a system based on fairness or a fair start in life. And if you took all of the future children that would be born in the next generation and you put them on an economic a spectrum of wealth and power from the least to the most, to make it function in a, in a free way, in a fair way, you'd have to redistribute wealth to ensure equality of opportunity. And the beauty of it is, sort of end it with this, um, there is a right to have children properly interpreted, it's the first human right. It's existential in nature, so it precedes and overrides other rights, but it's limited, and its goal is to ensure freedom and fairness for all. Um, and the, the redistribution part in this part is crucial. You can redistribute wealth as an incentive and entitlement to get kids to a fair start. That enables you to do so in a way that encourages delay, and that means parental readiness. And that also encourages smaller families, which restores nature. So properly interpreted, the right to have children is an overriding right, but it points towards a very particular future of smaller populations living in the sort of town hall relationships that we talked about before. And this makes, this makes people fighting for that future freedom fighters and others that want to impose their will on the earth. Um, and on future generations, it makes those people the antithesis of fighting for freedom. It makes them a threat to freedom. So if, if this isn't just about nature and population and women's autonomy, it's about freedom properly interpreted. And I think people pushing for better family planning to empower children are true freedom fighters.
You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. Some of what you're both talking about reminds me of Kim Stanley Robinson's fairly recent book, Ministry for the Future, which I highly recommend to anyone listening. It takes the idea of taking future generations seriously, as if they already exist with rights now. And I'm paraphrasing, he does a much better job in the book, but it was the first time I'd really seen a a comprehensive like attempt at what would that look like? The ministry for the future, the people who are advocating for future generations and what life should be like, you know, and, and what kind of a loan we're taking out against their future in the current system that we have. Is that somewhat of a characterization of some of the things that you guys deal with? I think it is. Uh, I agree. And one way to think of a ministry of the future would be, uh, let's take really wealthy white men saying that the world is underpopulated, we need to produce more kids. Those men made their wealth based on an unsustainable system of growth that imposed insanely destructive costs on future generations and on non-human animals, the most vulnerable species entities that there are. So they're calling for a continuation of that system. The real question is, if you made your wealth based on externalizing costs on helpless entities, arguably, you should pay those costs. And if you're going to pay those costs, you should pay them in an effective way that reverses that process. And we've said before, one effective way is by incentivizing small, delayed, and equitable families. The question then becomes, okay, well, if you externalize those costs, in part, let's say Elon Musk or uh, Ezra Klein or... Um, any of the other uh, talk, uh, the other men talking about underpopulation. If you externalize those costs in doing things by not requiring that every child born enjoy what the Children's Rights Convention promises them, and you took that wealth essentially from those kids and from the women who were forced to have them through the cultural and other forces Nanda had talked about, um, and we want to recoup those costs and use them for family planning to reverse the trend and point us towards an optimality of the sort of things that Partha Desgupta talks about at Cambridge. How do we do that? Well, we said before, the right to have children properly interpreted as the overriding human right. How could, you, how could a state, how could a government possibly assign property rights to people like Musk uh, or any of the other wealthy men or publicists like Klein? How could it assign property rights if it hadn't first established an existentially just people, things like complying with the Children's Convention. It can't assign property rights. It doesn't have any authority, any existentially just position to assign those property rights. So in fact, one ministry of the future approach is really simple. The wealth at the top is subject to an overriding claim over any property rights government has has given it. And that, that wealth should be used to reverse the trend, to recapture the externalized costs in the form of fair start family planning incentives. There's no question about it. If we took that wealth and we used it for that purpose, we would completely bend the arc on climate emissions, child welfare 
uh, and inequity problems, uh, women's autonomy, we would bend the arc totally in the right direction. And the question is, what's stopping us from taking that wealth? I think the question becomes increasingly powerful to people. And as, as the wealth gap grows, I think that question is going to get answered. We're not subject to a future that we uh, are, can't control because of people at the top. I think they're going to be subject to a massive shift uh, that would reflect a massive act of, of justice that would point towards a ministry of the future, which is like, you took this wealth, you put the cost on others, we're going to take it back for the right purposes, and government can't stop us. That is a just argument that we've been making for four years, multiple peer-reviewed pieces, and not one philosopher, ethicist, or political theorist has been able to dispute the claim. So the only thing I'd add to the Ministry for the Future piece, which I, I've, it sounds like a, a beautiful book, it's a fantastic name uh, for a book, and it's an excellent concept. It's obviously not a new concept. Uh, indigenous people have been talking about, you know, planning for um, many generations ahead of us. Um, but the one thing, one comparison I want to draw to our inability to care for or to even think about future generations is the, the same kind of human supremacist worldview. Um, just the way in which we see other beings, not the non-human world, as inferior to us, somehow we have this bias where we see those who don't yet exist who must have, as Carter says, access to the same rights, the same nature, the same quality, actually a better quality of life than we currently have, because this is not a great standard ecologically to be living by. We don't have the ability to put them in the same, in the same space as we put ourselves. Somehow we see ourselves, those who exist, as superior to those who are to come after us. Uh, and I, you know, I find that uh, the intergenerational injustice piece really striking because in our social justice movements, hardly anyone is speaking about the injustice that we are uh, forcing upon the future generations. We know it's not going to be a just world if we were to continue on uh, this path with business as usual. So even our fight for human justice, as we currently are engaging in, feels very limited in a variety of ways. But one of them is uh, a complete lack of um, recognition of the future generations. The other piece, uh, you know, to, to tag along the social justice aspect I feel there's also a bit of reductionism that goes on in our uh, social justice movements or even the feminist and reproductive and sexual health and rights movement is this view that talking about reproductive autonomy, you know, as an absolute right is, is the only thing that we should be uh, focusing on or fighting for. And as I originally alluded, and then, you know, Carter has spoken about the responsibility piece, majority of the people in the world currently do not have reproductive autonomy. So the fact that we are trying to uphold this right to have as many children as we want is actually 
kind of based in this co-opted idea that we all want to have children. It's based in a pronatalist idea that, that we have been kind of brainwashed with, that everybody must have children, as many children as we want. Um, so, you know, number one, we're not free to decide how many children we want because the want, quote unquote, has very much been constructed for us by all of the power structures that I've spoken about. The second thing is, as Carter has spoken about, the unfettered right to have as many children as we want is actually uh, a, a flaw because it uh, undermines the rights of all of the other people and all of the other beings and nature by having that unfettered right, but then also it undermines the rights of future generations. You know, if if we are truly talking about social, if we only want to talk about the human piece, we are talking about social justice, we have to include the true meaning of justice here. Um, it's not just justice for one aspect, um, but it, it really needs to include everything and everyone that exists exists now and has yet to exist. I thought I had thought a lot about this, but the way that you put that just now, it just hit me really hard. And, and, and we weren't even talking at that point. I mean, I wasn't thinking at that point of all non-humans. I was really only thinking about the human condition and the unfairness that we're placing the, uh, that, you know, in the future. But how do we tie this all into rewilding the need for providing a vibrant, safe, non-polluted future for ourselves and the rest of the planet? I think one way you can do it is to say that there is a right to relate with a rewilded, natural, restored planet. There's a right of all humans to have that relationship. Um, again, that relationship is crucial for health uh, because we've seen that even a one degree centigrade rise is ca causing significant fetal heart impacts on infants. So Paris, the Paris Accord was completely uh, uh, completely missed the mark because we're looking at significant impacts uh, and and it's you know looking at an additional, 0.5 to one degree centigrade on top of that, who knows what will happen. So instead we have to treat restorative less than 280 PPM uh, policies as part of a human right to relate to nature and treat uh, restoration as the imperative. And that's, it's physically doable. If there was significant investment in sequestration, family planning, um, we no longer recognize the property rights of the worst violators to continue doing what they're doing because uh, governments can't authorize threats to the people they represent um, to continue, then I think we can, we can get there. From a historical perspective, it's pretty easy. In the middle of the 20th century, towards the late uh, part of the 20th century, environmentalists were locked in a battle uh, between whether it was deep green ecology um, or it was nature as a human resource. The latter camp won. The latter camp ensured the climate crisis. Their mistake foisted unknowable suffering on future generations. There's the, the debate's over. They were wrong. The, the rewilding folks were right. We have to treat our right to be free from others, right? You um, as as a as the fundamental human right. And there are, you know, two to three dozen specific policy tactics that can move us in the direction 
of rewilding. But we, at Fair Start, we do it from the perspective of wanting to be free. Um, there's, there was a debate a long time ago, still continuing somewhat between political theorists. Politics is about power. So the question was, well, how do you define power? What do you mean by power? And the mistake that, that we and a lot of other people made was to think of power as violence coming from the top down from government. Power is any form of human influence. That debate largely has been won by the, the, the group that said, no, it's any form of human influence. It's climate emissions. It's bad parenting. Um, it's cultural influences. And if it is, if that's the case, then being free means you have to start from a position where there is no power, human power. That's a rewilded earth. And then you slowly build up consensual, relatively self-determining groups of people who uh, are using that power, but you never cross the baseline of eliminating nature. So again, I think if you want to take freedom seriously, you start from the perspective of rewilding. The foundation for climate restoration, it's the foundation for climate restoration, which is F, the number four, uh, CR.org. It's a great resource on how we can start to restore climatologically uh, nature. And they're at, at fair start and population balance. There are dozens of other tactics in terms of how to restore nature socially uh, through better family planning. And the key, though, is to see it as a, a fundamental human right, the right to nature, right to relate to nature, being part of a right to a fair start in life, one that overrides any competing claims. It has to be seen that way to be effective. We can't be cowed by governments who you know, claim to have authority when they've basically put the vast majority of people uh, in imminent risk that by doing so, they waive their authority to continue to operate in that sense. So um, that's how I would look at the importance of the non-human world. It's the necessary condition for human freedom. Human expansionism, uh, it's irrefutable that we have had uh, an irreversible impact on the more than human life. We have wiped out most of the wild world um, by dominating the planet. And, you know, if you look at it again from the humane education perspective, our responsibility is basically to uphold um, the rights of humans, the rights of nature, the rights of the planet, and for all of us to be able to coexist in a relational, empathetic, caring capacity, a capacity that allows us to hold the planet and the reverence that, that it deserves. From that perspective, the way that human expansionism has and is impacting the non-human world is, as most of your listeners will know, we are in a state of dangerous ecological overshoot. And that's primarily because of things you've already said, Jack, uh, population, our consumption, and the growth economy. We know we are grossly overpopulated. I know a lot of people don't like using the word overpopulated, but if you look at it from the perspective of science, um, it's just a word that describes that we have, we have surpassed our caring capacity, just like any other population. We are not exempt from that word, um, so I don't mind using it. But we are overpopulated by at least three to four times what our planet can sustainably handle. Uh, our consumption levels globally are on the rise with a swiftly expanding middle class. And our nations, 
uh, as I've spoken before, are pushing for an increase in both the population and consumption in order to grow our economy. It's a dangerous combination. Well, the main reason we have been pushing our sustainable limits uh, and natural laws is because of industrialization, uh, which has augmented our capacity to produce food faster than our population was growing, a scenario that no other species has been able to execute. And while we think of this as some kind of an exceptional achievement, uh, we know that it has come at the cost of forcefully taking over the carrying capacity of all other life forms and essentially wiping most of them out uh, while causing a number of other calamities, climate change being one of them, ecosystem destruction, mass extinctions, uh, and the degradation of the living conditions of our own species. So, you know, even if you compare where we were at 10,000 years ago, when we were such a tiny little speck, a mere 1% of all of Earth's biomass, living in a much more harmonious relationship with the rest of the non-human world, we have now completely humanized the planet. Our numbers, uh, our biomass, um, combined with the biomass of the animals that we kill for food, are basically majority of the biomass. It's 96%. And the rest of what remains is wildlife, compared to 10,000 years ago when it used to be 99%. To quote Eileen Christ again, she's one of my great mentors, all of this and expansionism has basically um, been in pursuit of uh, the human food pantry, she calls it. It's basically to feed our insatiable demand and growth. The food enterprise basically poses the largest threat uh, to the non-human world. Our animal agriculture system uh, that kills upwards of 100 billion animals each year is actually one of the largest causes of um, habitat loss, wildlife extinction, methane and carbon emissions. Um, you know, in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions, it's 30% of the emissions are coming from uh, our food production. To further, if you look at the water usage, 70% of the fresh water uh, that is taken from our ecological watersheds goes to basically maintain that food pantry, the food enterprise. And that is water that is then being taken away from non-humans who call that water home. It's either killing or driving them to extinction, in many cases, even before we could meet them. As I think Carter has described, like what the ideal world would look like is we, we really do need to scale back tremendously our human enterprise in a way that, of course, is empowering, kind, empathetic, but also I think once we start to do that and we arrive at a place where we feel that we are truly liberated and not living in a you know, sense of competition and greed and scarcity, there comes an opportunity for us to then cultivate the reverence for this incredible, miraculous planet that, that is life-giving, that has this incredible biodiversity, um, you know, where each and every organism has a role to play. 
to, to, you know, to truly live in a humane relationship with ourselves and the rest of the world. Carter, what about you? What's, what's your most hopeful feeling when you get one? Well, I, I think it's definitely around the sea change in fertility. I mean, I think for lots of reasons, uh, the average woman in the world is having half or fewer children than she would have had in the early middle part of the 20th century. Um, and that sea change outweighs, I think, even shorter lived trends like the hegemony of neoliberalism or other things that we might be afraid of. I think we're seeing our species turn itself in the right direction. And then the question is, how do we catalyze that? I think the, the gap between rich and poor, and we know the rich made it based on an unsustainable system that put costs on others. I think there's real hope that we can convince people that they have a right to take resources at the top that were, were made through externalizing costs and use them to better plan. I think they could, we could catalyze this sea change in a way that would make it a qualitative shift towards Dasgupta's optimality. We've, we've got a, several studies we published on the website that show people are, are responsive to that sort of incentive entitlement. So I think, look, in some ways, people before us have done the hard work of shifting the, the growth rate um, in a way that's that's going to point us towards a net a down arc. And I think there's a, a unique opportunity with the gap in wealth that we can catalyze that in a qualitative direction. And that makes me very hopeful. At the bottom of every episode of this podcast, we have extra credit. Go to rewilding.org slash POD and look for episode 93. If you were inspired today to learn more and go much, much deeper, that would be the place to go and the thing to do. So again, both of you, thank you so much for taking your time to do this. This was really, really a great episode. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having us. And thanks for the incredible work you guys are doing too. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.